Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Friday, February 24th. The City of Calgary is holding a vigil today, marking the somber one-year anniversary of the start of the war in Ukraine. Mayor Jyoti Gondek joined us on the show this morning, as she does every Friday, to talk about the importance of standing in solidarity with Ukrainians on this day. We also discussed the controversial topic of public art and what's being done to keep Calgarians warm in this brutal cold snap. According to the Calgary Catholic Immigration Society, nearly 100 Ukrainians arrive in Calgary daily. So what more needs to be done to support these displaced refugees? We invited Yulia Gorbach, chair of the Calgary Ukrainian Evacuee Committee, to join us and remind us what we can do to help. And 365 days and countless lives lost. Yes, with today marking one year since Russia invaded Ukraine, we wanted to find out where exactly the conflict is at and what it will and maybe take to finally bring it to an end. Andrew Rasoulis is a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an expert in Eastern European affairs, and he joined us with some insight. Calgary will mark the one-year anniversary of the start of the war in Ukraine with a vigil at City Hall today. Joining us to talk about this and all the latest news impacting Calgarians, we're joined this morning, as we are every Friday morning, by Mayor Jyoti Gondek. Good morning, Mayor. Good morning, Sue. It's a pretty somber day. It sadly is. I mean, I don't think anybody thought that it would be to this extent. I don't think anybody, you know, even perhaps saw this coming to the degree that we've seen over the past year. What are we doing here in the city of Calgary? What's the the city's involvement with the vigil itself, but the Chimes for Ukraine initiative as well? Well, I mean, one of the big things I have to point out is that we are going to be hosting the Ukrainian Canadian Congress Calgary branch inside the municipal building today at six o'clock for this vigil, just recognizing how cold it is. Um, We will be ringing the bell of historic City Hall at noon today. It'll ring for 15 seconds, followed by a minute of silence, and then there will be 12 single rings to stand in solidarity uh, for asking for peace, for an end to this war. Um, As you said, I don't think any of us thought it would go on for this long, but it has, and it just shows us how delicate and fragile democracy is. I think it's going to be important to just stand down at noon and, and listen, open up your ears as the, the the bells will chime. Every order of government, church, and any other facility will be ringing its bell at noon today in uh, 12 times in support of Ukraine and the 12 months of unprovoked war that they've had to endure. So I think that's a really beautiful initiative. Uh, the vigil itself tonight, is everybody welcome to come down to City Hall? Everybody's welcome to come down to stand in solidarity. Uh, it starts at 6 o'clock, so I would encourage people who can make it to come down to show support not only to the nation of Ukraine, but Ukrainian Calgarians who live here and have family there, as well as those who have fled that country and come to live in our city. I can tell you that I've had um, conversations as recently as yesterday with folks, senior leadership from Calgary Stampede, Calgary Economic Development, and the message is the same. We are here to stand with Ukraine. We are incredibly worried about global food security, global security of energy, just what this war stands for, the fact that it is wrong and immoral and cannot go on. We need to be standing together to fight against this. 100%. Did I hear a correct stat that 100 Ukrainians come to Calgary every day? I don't know about that stat, but it definitely would not surprise me if anyone has ever had the chance to go to the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, you will see so many people downstairs getting the assistance that they need. There are families there, not only getting things like blankets and clothes, but getting information on 
how to register for the important services they need in this new place that they call home. Okay, so the vigil, 6 o'clock, City Hall today, also at noon today, chimes for Ukraine. Let's change gears a little bit and talk about something that's creating a bit of controversy in the city yet again as we talk about public art. What is it about public art that gets people so irate on both sides of it? I think it's people's perception of what public art is. And, you know, the most recent thing that people are up in arms about is actually... You know, if I may, a giant nothing burger. We have been talking about this for years. And what we actually did, that is a fundamental step in the right direction. We now have Calgary Arts Development Authority working on the public art program. So you've got people that are experts in this field making important decisions about what public art means to Calgarians and finding not only pieces but locations where people can actually engage in the beauty of public art. And for some reason, some of my colleagues don't understand that. And the other important thing here is the funding for public art, which is tied to big infrastructure projects, used to have a stipulation that said, the public art must be tied to the piece of infrastructure. That's why you see things attached to bridges and in very strange locations, like yeah. intersections that no one can access. Right. That's not the case anymore. That's a good news story. Communities can actually engage with the program and fundamentally put things in important places. So I'm not sure what the big uprising is. So if this uh, it t- takes the, the art projects and, and the funding for them or the decision on each project out of city council's hands, is that it? Well, it wasn't even city council. We had an administrator that was in charge of the public art program, and that person wasn't necessarily a member of the creative sector or the community in Calgary. And now we've got you know, an arts authority who does this work, uh, banding together as a group to figure out great locations for Calgarians to engage with public art. So, yeah, we've taken it out of the hands of the bureaucracy and put it into the hands of the community and the creative sector. That makes far more sense, for sure. Um, I was going to ask you something else about the art, and it just uh, went out of my head. So one of those <laughs> days, Mayor. Uh, let's move, I'll, if I remember, I'll come back to it, but let's move to Stephen Avenue, because I think, you know, there's a, a lot that's important about Stephen Ave. It's really central to our downtown, obviously, but there are some very important historical parts to it, too. And the revitalization, the newest project down there is on hold for now while we do what? Well, from what I understand, there has been a request from the province to do a heritage assessment of the buildings that are um, on that site that's being considered for redevelopment. And that is absolutely the purview of the province to do so. Um, There are local folks who are experts in heritage who have said, we need to make sure that it's not just the exterior that we are preserving and recognizing as uh, heritage or historic. We need to make sure if there's things inside those buildings that we are also um, taking care of that type of preservation. So the province has intervened and asked for heritage assessment, and we shall see what comes of it. Okay, um, let's talk about the, the weather. Obviously, bitterly cold for Calgarians these last bunch of days. Those of us who have a home to go home to or, you know, a, a, a vehicle to get us where we need to go, cold but bearable for those who are living on the street, certainly not like that at all. Warming shelters and the cold weather strategy for the city of Calgary, what's that been like? Has it changed in any way through this last stretch? Well, I would say the biggest change that happened at the end of last year was that shelters are operating 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, I can tell you that occupancy rates are just above 75%, so there is space at shelters. Um, Calgary Homeless Foundation has really been leading the charge on this. There are emergency shelter shuttles that are available. There are warming stations at the Salvation Army. 
the Animal Services Center continues to accept pets. And I would say, you know what, these are the interim solutions for when the weather is this cold. But longer term, the types of things that we identified that are keeping people from being properly housed with dignity, they include access to first and last month's rent. They include solutions for Indigenous peoples who are overrepresented um, in the statistics. So we addressed that last week with a very big announcement of funding. So we continue to work with our partners to try to help people get housed um, in a place that they are cared for. Perfect. I, I remembered when I wanted to ask you, and it's an important question because it came from a texter, and they're not the only one to say this, that you know, the money for public art, bouncing back to that, the money for public art would be better used elsewhere. Can you explain where that money comes from and, and why it is it goes specifically to art so people understand? Yeah, when a project is um, being considered, the money that is put into it for the project itself also comes along with a percentage of funding, a proportion that is designated to public art. And I know there are a lot of people that say it could be better spent. The thing is, you have to understand it's 1% funding from infrastructure projects that is tied to the project. It's not like we've created a revenue stream in some other way. And I would remind people, you know, if you hang a painting in your home, if you paint your walls, if you've ever read a great book or loved a great story or watched anything on Netflix, that is all art. It's all part of the creative economy. And there are people in this world, people in Ukraine, that have literally nothing left, nothing. And they will be rebuilding their entire nation. And I guarantee they will be focused on ensuring it's beautiful. Let's be thankful for the fact that we recognize that in our city. Thank you, Mayor. Appreciate it. On that note, again, we'll remind people there's a vigil at City Hall today at 6 p.m. Everyone welcome and be listening at noon. It is the Chimes for Ukraine initiative. You'll hear bells ringing throughout the city, and uh, I think it'll be a a beautiful moment to pay attention to the fact that this is the one-year anniversary of a terrible war happening in Ukraine. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Sue. Have a good weekend. You too. Jody Gondek, Calgary Mayor. And after one year of the war in Ukraine, is there enough support for Ukrainian newcomers to our city here in Calgary? Joining us to talk about it is Yulia Gorbach, who is the chair of the Calgary Ukrainian Evacuee Committee. Good morning to you, Yulia. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning to you. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about the committee, Calgary Ukrainian Evacuee Committee. Tell us about the work that you do specifically. So together with the Ukrainian Canadian Congress, Alberta Provincial Chapter, we formed the committee a year ago now and it consists of St. Vladimir's Ukrainian Orthodox Church, Assumption of Blessed Virgin Mary, Ukrainian Catholic Church, St. Stephen's Catholic Church and uh, we have been very blessed to work with Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints and Rotary Club, Stampede Park and uh, Rotary Club North. We've been working now for a year, we've seen uh, many many people with many terrible stories coming to Calgary and our goal from the very beginning was to try and reduce homelessness, hunger and human trafficking. And the reason why it's so important is because people were not ready to come to Calgary, mm-hmm. to Canada. They didn't study uh, English. A lot of them are really good with it, but by far the majority is requiring learning English to even get a job. Can't even imagine how just difficult the whole picture is just horrible for the people of Ukraine. 
the war itself and then having to be displaced. You've probably in a lot of cases, the home has, has disappeared and, you know, perhaps never to be built back up again. But they come to another country, don't perhaps speak the language and are, you know, plop down here and have to start a brand new life, not just for one person, but for a whole family. So can you tell us about the number of Ukrainian refugees who have arrived here in the city of Calgary over the past year? So we have, uh, we call it Ukrainian Welcome Center. It's in Vladimir Sobor. We might be moving here uh, shortly, but so far we've uh, welcomed 7,919 people at our center alone. Wow. Those are not old people that come to Calgary. It's estimated that close to 10,000 people right now of Ukrainian evacuees are in Calgary. As for statistics, over 21,000 people uh, Ukrainian uh, evacuees came to Alberta, and about 46% of them come to Calgary. So we see uh, lately about double the numbers what we've seen before uh, Christmas. But we see less interest and just less awareness in Calgary generally about the issues that these people are facing and the ability to contribute and help those people. So we really encourage people to, Calgarians, uh, to take interest in that and try to help. Okay, so let's talk about that. What are some of the the biggest challenges that these newcomers face? I mean, I'm sure there are so many of them, but what are the big ones that we really need to know about? So the our committee, amongst many many different issues, and don't take me wrong, there is a million of them. We we have uh, determined four main pillars of supports for Ukrainian evacuees. First one is onboarding. It's your basic uh, pillow blanket cup and fork, you know, mm-hmm. that's what we do at the center. Then the information, we work with settlement agencies like Center for Newcomers, Calgary Catholic Immigration Services, uh, Calgary Immigrant Services, um, and many others who come to our center on Saturdays and help people orient themselves how the government functions work, how the registration, what is SIN number, how to get the driver's license. So many things we take for granted, right? Absolutely. The other thing is, obviously, we have huge issue with housing. And it's not just Ukrainian evacuees, obviously. It's A, it's expensive, B, it's not available. So for Ukrainian to come in without credit history in Canada or job yet, it's basically impossible to find a place to live. So homelessness is a really, really um, key issue. And mm-hmm. we're trying to work with uh, volunteer hosts for several months until they, until Ukrainian evacuees get a little bit of English and try to find a job in their own place to host them for several months and give them this jump start. And uh, we also talk to uh, settlement agencies as well as uh, to other institutions. For example, Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints created a partnership with MRU University for dorm accommodations. Love it. That was absolutely amazing. We couldn't thank him enough for that. And that helped a lot of people. The next pillar is English. And, you know, when I say English language learning, it sounds very mundane. It's like, okay, we're going to learn English. You know, we have courses that our committee organized and that's financed by private donations from Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, Rotary Club Stampede Park, Rotary Club North, St. Stephen's um, Ukrainian Catholic Church and Ed Stelmach Foundation. And we call it survival intensive English classes. Mm -hmm. So just the name in itself tells you what it is about. It's not about just learning English. It's given opportunity for people to survive here in Calgary in Canada. By learning a little bit of English, that beginning level, so they can get that job. The basics, right? The, that's right. And uh, definitely, if you have a little bit of English, you try to find the jobs. What we see is very, very challenging for Ukrainians is obviously they don't have Canadian experience. Mm-hmm. They don't have Canadian experience. 
We have a lot of wonderful specialists, but most of them just want a job. Ukrainians come to Calgary and all they want to do is work. Work, have a decency of earning their own income and supporting their own families. They're not looking for handouts. They're just looking for a chance to survive. Okay, on that note, the stage is yours, Yulia. How can we continue to support Ukrainian people, newcomers to our city? What's your call to action? What do we do? We wanted to call a lot of volunteers to provide volunteer hosts, volunteer housing for two, three months for Ukrainian evacuees. There's uh, several settlement agencies that administered properly through proper legal framework, which includes PIA, it's Port Immigration uh, Association, Calgary Immigrant, uh, Calgary Catholic Immigrant Services, and Center for Newcomers, as well as uh, people can go to our site, stflats.com aid, and uh, register to provide volunteer housing to Ukrainian evacuees. We obviously ask um, Calgarians to take an interest in our uh, English classes and help us finance these classes we obviously would like the government to step in and provide those classes immediately on arrival. The reason why it's so important is Ukrainians, when they come in, they are not registered refugees. They only get 3000 per adult and $1,500 per child. To build life on that is impossible mm-hmm. here in Canada, anywhere. It doesn't matter where it is. So, And they don't get anything else. They, need, they get a work permit and they need to find a job immediately. So this immediate... Survival English is key for their survival, really. Right. So many ways that we can help out. Hopefully, people hearing this, it's a good reminder. This is the one-year anniversary of this war. Let's all do our part and help out bringing these Ukrainian folks coming into our beautiful city. Thank you so much for your time, Yulia. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Yulia Gorbach is the Calgary Ukrainian Evacuee Committee Chair. Today marks one year since Russia invaded Ukraine. After a year at war, where does this conflict stand and what will it take to bring it to an end? Andrew Rasoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and expert in Eastern European Affairs, is back with us to talk about the latest. Good morning to you, Andrew. Thanks so much for joining us once again. Good morning, Sue. And Andy, if he's there. Andy is off today, so you just have me. So you and I will have a a great chat. Thank you for being with us. It's kind of, you know, a somber, sad anniversary, I suppose, that we're one year into a war. But at the same time, Andrew, this is a war that Putin figured he would never really, it was not going to be a war, that it would be a quick takeover. So in a sense, it's, it's good news that Ukrainian people have been able to hold off the Russians for so long, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's a great way to put it, uh, because the original concept for the Russians was a short, sharp operation, really. They didn't even call it war, because it wasn't supposed to be a war. Uh, it was supposed to be essentially a regime change uh, with using special forces, change the Ukrainian government, uh, and make it a very pro-Russian, neutral type of buffer zone. And that failed in the early days. On the other hand, then we saw a year of war. And as we are at the anniversary today, we are seeing a very tough fight going on in eastern Ukraine. And the Russians are conducting, as we speak, their offensive. It's slow, grinding. They move, they're moving a little bit in the Bakhmut area. The Ukrainians are defending. Casualties are heavy on both sides. And the Ukrainians are preparing for their own counteroffensive. Once the, the current promised wave of Western equipment, like main battle tanks, armored fighting vehicles, once that arrives, so by spring, early summer, we expect the Ukrainians to launch their counteroffensive. But where will all this lead by the summer? And we don't know. And we don't know the dynamics of the war and how it will change the political landscape out there. 
Do we know, Andrew, casualty numbers? You mentioned that word. That's, you know, we can put it very simply in deaths on, on either side. Do we have any legitimate numbers of how many Ukrainians and how many Russians have been killed? We do not have any uh, official figures. Um, so we have, like, uh, you can say reasonable estimates. Now, in the fall, General uh, Milley, the American commander-in-chief, uh, he said 100,000 each side. That's uh, casualties like dead and wounded. Uh, and that's an American estimate, which is probably reasonable. Uh, that was this fall. Now people are saying it may have crept up to 200,000. But again, these are it's on both sides in a way. So that's the kind of orders of magnitude. It's like a few hundred thousand on each side. Do we know there were not too long ago pictures from Russia, Russia where young men were actually trying to flee the country because they didn't want to be conscripted in. Are they still pulling young soldiers into the military in Russia to continue this offensive? They've completed that that wave the, where you saw where, you, where we saw those uh, those people leaving. Uh, I mean, so more were conscripted than left. <laughs> so so or, or called up again. They were calling up reserves here, and uh, so they've got they have they they did get their three hundred thousand, and uh, and so they are deploying them in the current offensive. They are being deployed. Uh, we don't see any further streams of people leaving en masse. But the Russians have not done another mobilization. Uh, there's talk that they might, but it's not there yet. Putin has not mentioned it. So we don't know if they will do it or they will try to keep going with what they've got and just in the normal cycle of recruitment and so on. So that's an open-ended question. You mentioned uh, earlier spring and summer. So obviously we know this conflict is not going to end anytime soon. Do you think it will even be within a year? Or are we talking a years-long war in this case? I mean, both are potentially there. The question is exhaustions. So, I mean, I think I think we're coming to a narrative now. I mean, there's different views, of course. Um, but the, 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 there's, I mean, the narrative that I'm more comfortable with suggests that uh, there will be no major breakthroughs in these offenses. You cannot predict that. But you, but there's a sense that both sides will grind against each other. And I'm thinking of things like Korea in 1953. I think I've mentioned that to you before, mm-hmm. that basically by the summer into the fall, rather than breakthroughs, rather than losers, winners, we may get exhaustion. And if you get exhaustion, that then changes the political calculus, whereas ceasefire today is unacceptable to both. At a point like in Korea in 53, ceasefire becomes more palatable if their armies are not able to advance political objectives on the battlefield. Then what's the point of continuing the war? And you might as well go for a ceasefire, even if it's a limited one. And and even understanding that the war will not end officially, like in Korea, it never has ended. It's But there is a ceasefire. It's lasted since 53. Now, the other uh, outlying factor is this morning, uh, the Chinese have announced their 12-point police peace plan. That's just out there now. The Ukrainians said they'll look at it. The Americans are very skeptical. NATO's very skeptical. But the Chinese are the second largest power in the world, and they have an interest to end this war. They don't like it. It disturbs their economic interests. Uh, They also do not want to see the Russians lose, because from a Chinese point of view, their interest is to diminish the power of the United States. And if, uh, and if Ukraine does well against Russia, it enhances the American-led unipolar world. 
and that is against Chinese interests as well as Russian interests. So um, there's, a, there's, there, there's that dynamic out there as well on the, on the peace plan option. Not today. It's a remote possibility, but it's out there. You know, and I kind of on that note, I was going to ask you, how, how is Russia able to continue to support this war effort without completely draining resources? Are they getting backdoor funding from the Chinese? Uh, yes. Uh, they're, 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 because the, the Russians are, uh, the Chinese are buying lots of Amer- uh, Chinese products, like particularly hydrocarbons. So as the West have, uh, have, uh, have tried to um, wean themselves off uh, Russian hydrocarbons, the Chinese have bought it up. Now they're getting at a discount rate. So the Russians are not making the same amount of money, but they're still making money. Uh, so that keeps the, the financial flows going. But the other thing to remember is um, Russia has its own internal economy. It's not fancy. Uh, They have a hard time producing uh, precision munitions, but they can produce basic munitions, like basic artillery shells, tank shells, uh, and they are producing them. They have a very substantive armaments industry, and that's why right now in the logistics situation, the Ukrainians are burning through more of their ammunition and, and in terms of compared to the supply, whereas the Russians are able to continuously resupply their forces with the basic stuff. Um, and so they're allowed to, you know, they, the Russians are able to keep the pressure on as a result. So the Russian economy is, is in fact, in some ways, the Russian economy is growing because it, it's, they, the Russians have to become more self-reliant. So as, you know, Starbucks leaves, they got this, this new Russian version of Starbucks, and, and all the, that's what they're doing across the board. Mm. So... Yeah, Russian economy is not dead. It's been fascinating to watch, sadly, for the past year. This is a somber anniversary for sure. Thanks so much for keeping us updated throughout this time, Andrew. You're very welcome, Sue. Have a good day. Thanks, you too. Andrew Rasoulis is a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an expert in Eastern European affairs.